You're listening to All the Best. I'm Danny Stewart. This week, stories of love and injustice. In 1980, Peter was sentenced to death for a crime he didn't commit. In our first story, Connor takes us through the incredible sequence of events that happened next. Peter and Sonny are a very cute couple. Even though they've been together for more than 20 years, they still sound like two teenagers in love. Well, my name's Sonny Jacobs. I'm sitting here with my beloved Peter Pringle. And um, Peter is a big, tall, handsome man. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) He's very handsome and he's very kind and he's very good to me. And um, he's very opinionated. (laughs) (laughs) They meditate together. They sing to each other. They even work together. So what am I? Tell him. Go ahead. Okay. My name is Peter Pringle. And sitting with me is my beautiful, loving wife, Sonny Jacobs. Uh, Sonny is, uh, (laughs) what are you, about 5'2"? No, well, I was. I'm about 5 now. (laughs) A little over 5 feet high. She's a small woman with a beautiful big smile and a wonderful personality. Um, and she dedicates a lot of herself to the work that we do, which is to help wrongly convicted people after they're released from prison. In 2012, Sonny and Peter established the Sonny Centre. Here, they help wrongfully convicted people after they've been exonerated and released from prison. This is a personal mission. In 1980, Peter was wrongfully convicted of killing a policeman in Ireland. He was sentenced to death by hanging. One day, very early into his sentence, Peter was sitting alone in his cell. He heard several prison guards talking outside and they were talking about him and on one occasion, I heard three of them discussing what role they would have to play in my execution, which would have been by hanging. And uh, they had been told that two jailers would have to participate in the process. And they discussed that what they would do have to do is that when, when my body would go down through the gallows, there would be two jailers underneath, and each one would have to pull one of my legs to make sure my neck was broken. And this discussion went on in my presence as if I didn't exist. And uh, was uh, it angered me very much because it's, you know, the death penalty is a very inhumane process. It even affects the jailers. As a result of that, I, I realized that it was an actuality. I was definitely facing the possibility of, of death. And to my surprise, I discovered that I wasn't afraid to die, but that I was afraid that I might not die with dignity. And uh, I determined that I would not let them take my dignity away. After that experience, Peter vowed to fight. He began to study his case to try and prove his innocence. But the weight of his sentence and the behaviour of the guards loomed over him. He grew angrier and angrier, to the point where he couldn't even concentrate on his case. And so I knew I had to relax. And I got a friend to leave me in a little book on yoga which I knew nothing about. Mm-hmm. And so in the cell on my own, holding this book and looking at these strange contortions that people get into when they're doing yoga, I began to teach myself how to do yoga. And I began to 
teach myself how to practice to meditate. See, while I was physically imprisoned, they couldn't imprison my mind or my heart or my spirit. So it was in those realms of myself I decided I would live. In 1995, after 15 years in prison, Peter was released. He wouldn't meet Sonny until 1998, when their paths crossed after an uncanny series of coincidences. We had a Cupid. We had an actual Cupid in our life, and that was Steve Earle, the Galway Girl Man. Steve Earle is an American musician. You might know his songs Copperhead Road or Galway Girl. Steve wrote Galway Girl when he lived in Galway, on the west coast of Ireland. That's how he became friends with Peter. Steve is also an activist, and he's been campaigning against the death penalty in the United States for years. That's how he became friends with Sonny. Because each of us individually had become friends with him without knowing each other. I mean, first of all, how does that happen anyway? But for my side of it, I was marching against the death penalty with a number of organizations in America. And we found ourselves in Texas. Sonny was giving a speech in a little church. Afterwards, she got talking to some people from Ireland who worked for Amnesty International. They were so moved by her story that they asked her if she'd be willing to come to Ireland to speak at an Amnesty International event. And I was over the moon about that because at that time, gosh, I hadn't been really anywhere, you know. The next day, Sonny was giving another anti-death penalty talk when she bumped into her old friend, Steve Earle. So I told him, I was like, Steve, I've been invited to Ireland. And he said, when you go to Ireland, you got to meet Peter Pringle. And I was like, okay, Peter Pringle, okay. Now he didn't tell me anything about Peter. So I just knew this name, Peter Pringle. Okay. A few months later, Sonny comes to Ireland and she meets up with the people from Amnesty International. Somebody there asked me, did you know Peter Pringle? I was like, no, but I guess you better give me his number because everybody seems to think I should know Peter Pringle. So they did. And, and I called him and I uh, invited him to come to my talk. And uh, he said, uh, well, what's it about? And I said, it's about the death penalty. And he said, oh, yeah, I'm interested in that. So I went along to hear her and I brought two friends. And it was in a room over the King's Head in Galway, pub in Galway. We went into a room, which was empty. And then the door opened on the far side of the room and this little lady walked in. And this big, tall man with white hair and a white beard came up to me and he said, you must be Sonny Jacobs. And she looked up at me with a big smile and she said, You must be Peter Pringle. <laughs> and, and that's, that's actually how we met. At this point, Sonny still didn't know why Peter was so interested in her talk. And Peter didn't know what Sonny would be talking about. He knew that she would be speaking about the death penalty, but he didn't know about Sonny's story. He didn't know that 15 years earlier, when he was sitting in a prison cell in Ireland, listening to the prison guards, trying to practice yoga. He didn't know that at that same time, on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, that Sonny was also sitting in a prison cell for a crime that she didn't commit. 
I didn't even have a table or a chair. There was a metal shelf with a thin mattress that was my bed. There was a sink and toilet combination, my pajamas, my little rubber flip-flop shoes, a washcloth, a towel, and a piece of lye soap that was made in a different prison, my toothbrush. That was all. Just like Peter, Sonny was wrongfully convicted of killing a policeman. She was also sentenced to death. And remarkably, she also got through it using yoga and meditation. You don't need anything but your breath. Nothing else but your breath and the choice that you want to, you want to develop your spiritual self. That's really it. So um, yoga and meditation and prayer became my trinity. In those ways, I was able to open up a world of freedom that I actually had never known before and that no one could take away from me. Fast forward to 1995, and Sonny is in Galway, Ireland, delivering her talk about her time in prison. Peter is sitting in the audience, and from the stage, Sonny can see the effect that her words are having on him. Every time I looked over at this big, strong man, he was crying. He was actually crying. I thought, oh my God, I'm, I'm really pressing buttons on this guy. I, I, I felt responsible, and I, I knew I needed to speak to him afterward. And I actually even toned down my talk because I could see how it was affecting this guy. And afterwards, I knew I wanted to speak to her. So I said to her, I'd like to talk to you. And she said that she would like to talk to me too, but that she only had an hour. I said, an hour? I said, what's your hurry? Where are you going? Sonny had to travel to Cork for another talk the next day. Cork is about a four-hour drive. So Peter offered to drive her. I drove her away down through Clare and showed her all the various sites. All this time, Peter knew Sonny's story but she didn't know his story. So when they stopped for lunch, she asked him. She turned to me and she said, what's your interest in all this? Because I hadn't said anything about my own story. So I told her, I told her I'd been wrongly convicted and sentenced to that too. And she said, So Sonny listened to Peter tell the story of his ordeal. And all of a sudden, everything clicked. This was the reason why everyone kept saying that she should meet Peter. This is why Peter had been so upset by her talk. It all made sense. When Peter finished telling his story, they looked at each other. Sonny put down her sandwich and asked, how did you get through it? And he said, yoga and meditation. That's when, boing, the bells went off in my head because like I've met a number of wrongly convicted men before and none of them told me that they got through by doing yoga and meditation, which was what I did. Sonny and Peter continued their car journey onto Cork. They were both sharing their stories fully at this stage. And sometimes we'd be driving along crying, weeping, and other times we'd be laughing our heads off. But the next day, Peter had to go home. And uh, I, um, I, I asked him to let me know you got home okay. Because, again, it was hard to break the connection. You know, it's like, this is an amazing connection. And 
Oh, he said, I don't want you to think that I don't find you attractive, but I'm in a relationship and I tried to be an honorable man. And that interested me because by that time in my life, I had no time for bullshit. I just didn't. So I thought, ah, an honorable man. This interests me. Shortly after Sonny went home to America, Peter decided that not enough people had heard her speak. So he organised a series of talks in Galway, Dublin and Belfast. And to attract a bigger audience, their old friend Steve Earle agreed to play a few songs. It worked. All of the talks and concerts sold out. And this is when Sonny and Peter were finally able to take their relationship to the next level. When Belfast and Dublin came up, I booked hotels and I, I had uh, <laughs> I had three rooms booked, one for Steve, one for Sonny and one for me. But when, once we got to the first hotel, I only needed two rooms <laughs> because Sonny came and stayed with me and that's when we became intimate. Sonny and Peter began a long-distance relationship. They went back and forth across the Atlantic for a couple of years. Every time Sonny visited Ireland, Peter would organise talks and yoga workshops. When 9-11 happened, Sonny was teaching yoga in a prison in Ireland. Afterwards, she went back to the hotel to meet Peter, and the lobby was full of tourists watching the tragedy unfold in New York. She was due to fly out the next day, but she couldn't because all flights into the United States were cancelled. And so she had to spend an extra week with me, which I loved. In that week, we discussed whether we should try to live together or not. Because, you see, neither of us knew whether we could actually live with somebody, having been alone for so long. And um, we decided we'd give it a go and that we would do so in the west coast of Ireland. And that's what happened. And so in December of that year, she... Uh, sold what she could sell and gave away what she couldn't and gave up her apartment and so we've been together since. After, a, I don't know, after some time uh, we decided that we would marry our, each other. On the morning of the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year, they got up early and exchanged clatter rings. A clatter ring is a traditional Irish ring in which a heart wearing a crown is held by two hands. The heart represents love, the crown stands for loyalty, and the two clasped hands symbolise friendship. That night, and we picked the shortest day of the year because we were felt we were too old to wait very long. <laughs> we didn't want a long engagement. <laughs> so, so we had a, a, a less than a day's engagement. Yeah, we got engaged that morning. And got married And then that evening. that evening, before the sun went down, we went to the... Uh, we went to the shore with our two dogs and God as our witnesses, which we felt was all we needed to make it official. Um, we read each other the Apache wedding blessing and, and we married ourselves. It was really nice. last question was going to be uh, do you guys have a song that's your song oh yes we do it's um you know from uh from uh that movie peter 
A kiss is just a kiss. Oh, yes. A sigh is just a sigh. As time goes by. As time goes by. As time goes by. So just remember this. A kiss is just a kiss. A sigh is put aside. The fundamental things apply. As time goes by. Love songs and moonshine and love songs. Never out of days. Heart filled with Glad. passion, energy that's great. Woman needs man, and man must have his mate. There's no one can this my doctor. Excuse me. <laughs> so just remember this. <laughs> anyway, that's that's our song. That story was produced by Connor Sweetman with help from supervising producer Daniel Simo. You're listening to All The Best. I'm Danny Stewart. At All The Best, you can learn how to make audio documentaries, essays, and fiction. If you have a story to tell, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pair you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. Our theme this week, love and injustice. And of course, we can't speak of injustice elsewhere without addressing the ongoing injustice faced by First Nations people on this continent. Up next, Mananjali and South Sea Islander academic and writer Chelsea Wadigo on the unwavering and magical force of black love. And a content warning, this story includes descriptions of racism and the names of people who have passed. My name is Chelsea Wadigo. I'm a Mananjali and South Sea woman and I'm Professor of Indigenous Health at Queensland University of Technology. I am reading my essay for the love of blackfellas from Turable Country. Several years ago, I attended a university lunchtime seminar delivered by two male colleagues. Now, I have been in any number of academic seminars such as this. Some of them pass without much fuss as people hurry out the door when the hour is up, while others linger longer, spurred by an intense debate about this theory or that. For the most part, those debates were often taken up by the men in the room and appear to serve little purpose beyond trying to prove who had the biggest bookshelf. But on this particular day, the room was filled mostly with white women, with the exception of myself and a few other blackfellows, which included Dr Fiona Foley, an internationally renowned bachelor artist who held a position at the time as an adjunct professor. The presenters, one Indigenous and one non-Indigenous, were sharing their work as PhD candidates, one of which included an analysis of the Aboriginal's Protection and Restriction of the Sale of Opium Act of 1897 while the other expressed some rather controversial ideas about the possibility of an indigeneity without ancestry. As the seminar opened for questions from the nice white woman in the room, I distinctly remember the moment Dr Fiona Foley entered the chat. The specific comments and questions she made that day aren't so much relevant to the story, except to say I distinctly remember her pointing out the limitations of their knowing. 
I also distinctly remember the discomfort in the room surrounding her participation, both from the male presenters and from the mostly white woman audience. While others squirmed in their seat, I had to confess I really enjoyed the spectacle of it all. Foley was forthright and unapologetic and did not miss, as they had, after all, been speaking on a subject matter for which she had cultural and intellectual authority to speak on. I remember, too, the moment when a flustered white woman sought to remedy this apparent discomfort by invoking bell hooks on love in an all-we-need-is-love kind of way. It was obvious she was trying to bring the parties together to form a resolution or truce, and I remember feeling really angry about it. How dare she invoke a black woman from elsewhere to silence Foley, a sovereign black woman from here? And how dare she imply that love was absent in that exchange? Foley's career had focused on bringing to light the truth of a most violent piece of legislation that has shaped the lives of all black fellows across the state of Queensland, which neither of the presenters could claim a lived connection to. Foley has been meticulous in her research and as an artist, she has taken great care to represent this violence without reenacting it. Precisely because of her love for blackfellas. Ironically, Bell Hooks has long been in discussion with Aboriginal women here about love, and she did not speak of love as a remedy for quelling resistance or dismissing the intellectual and creative work of other black women. In an interview with Dr Jackie Huggins and Sister Girl, when asked about disputes between black women and black men, Hook explains... I think the strongest aspect of who I am is that I really love my community and I love black people. And I found that everywhere I go, people don't just shut me out because they see that feeling of love and concern. In some of my writings, I've been talking about love as a force, not as a sentimental romantic feeling, but as a political force that can mediate some of the tensions that arise. I think what angered me most about the misreading of Hooks and of Foley was that this was most familiar to me. As a self-proclaimed wild black woman, I know what it is to be deemed unloving by a work that is grounded in nothing but love for black people. It's not easy work to insist upon the humanity of a people deemed destined to die and unworthy of shit. It is work that some days makes my body ache makes my heart sore and makes me hate this world. Yet I love my work as much as I resent the fact that it is necessary. I love black people to the point of believing that we are worth fighting for. What I love most is the nature of that love, a love found amidst the injustice of it all. In the so-called civilising agenda of the colonial project, blackfellas have held fast our own compass of emotion and refuse to have love disciplined out of us. Yet casting us as both unloving and unlovable has been instrumental to the colonial project and enabled it to dispossession with the assumption that nothing ties us to each other or the land that we come from. But has always and only ever been love that binds us to each other and which fuels the fights we are forced to take up. I was reminded more recently of this love having watched the documentary The Bowerable Murders, which chronicles the decades-long fight for justice for three Aboriginal children, Colleen Walker-Craig, Clinton Speedy Juro and Evelyn Greenup, who went missing from the same street over a five-month period. 
Some might well witness this story and be angered and overwhelmed by the injustice. But the most powerful part of it for me was the story of love that was told. I felt the love for Bowerville, itself situated between the piggery and the dump. I saw the love of community in amongst the the police graffiti sprayed on burnout cars and I heard the love for loved ones long gone, of children born into a fight for justice for relatives they never met and a love that was so damn insistent that it refused to give up when the police, the courts, the public and the politicians had. In the closing scene of the documentary, Renella Duro stands before a sign that commemorates the death of her nephew Clinton. She states... Our fight for justice may be exhausted some ways, somehow, but coming back and touching this up and doing it up again, well, that's just, you know, reinforcing our love for Bubby and our memories of him and whoever it was that done this to him. And we're letting them know, we're reminding them that we haven't forgotten and we won't. (sighs) I'd give anything to have one more hug with you, my boy. Black love is as strong in death as it is in life. It is as unwavering as our sovereignty is unceded. In fact, Wemba Wemba scholar Paola Bella argues that sovereignty itself is love and resistance simultaneously. I love blackfellas, if not just for the kind of love that we reserve just for each other, a love that exists in spite of a social world that despises us. It's the finding a spare mattress to put in the lounge kind of love, the stay up and laugh about the same old stories till one in the morning kind of love, the drop everything and run in a time of crisis kind of love, the making sure that no one goes without when you have little to spare kind of love. It's the black parent marching up the school to give it to the teachers kind of love. It's the speaking up as the lone black fellow in a sea of whiteness with no sense of backup kind of love. It's the choosing to leave that violent workplace despite its rewards kind of love. Some days it's the staying in that violent workplace despite the lack of recognition kind of love. It is that truth-telling, growling kind of love, that turning up to funerals on behalf of one's family kind of love. It is that overlooking the policies and procedures kind of love. It is that loan that never gets repaid kind of love, the lift to one more destination kind of love. It's a love that, like black presence itself, is presumed to be nowhere yet can be found everywhere and not just as a political force. You see, I know black love as romantic and sentimental too in the most unique kind of way. It is as forgiving as it is fierce and as joyful as it is heartbreaking. The love between blackfellas offers an unrivaled intimacy in the familiarity between souls brought together despite all odds being stacked against them. And it is in the knowing that makes black love all that more worth fighting for, even when no one else believes in the possibility of it. Black love is a love that is felt so deeply. It speaks to spirit. And when you make mention of it, those goosebumps run the full length of one's arm. It's the same feeling I get when I witness the work of Fiona Foley, a love that was beyond the comprehension of those in that seminar that day but is known so intimately among sovereign black women. It is we who know all too well that there's nothing more beautiful, more powerful or more magical than black love. To quote Barker, I'm feeling this magic I want to feel with you. We've already been through the hardest. I want to heal with you. 
it'd feel like magic every time we touch. Nah, you can't come close to this black love. Always was, always will be, and that's it for us. I would like to acknowledge the love of black women which enabled this piece, from the staunch scholarship and friendship of Dr Fiona Foley to the generosity of Crystal McKinnon who shared with me the conversation between Hooks and Dr Jackie Huggins, to the love of Dr Paola Bella who champions the titterhood like no other. Thank you. That was Mananjali and Salsi Islander academic and writer Chelsea Watergo reading her essay for The Love of Blackfellas, which first appeared in the Sunday paper, an independent publication centering Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander and Palestinian people working to resist settler colonial occupation. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past and present. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Murundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonarong lands and 8CCC on Arunda and Warramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mel Chun Emma Pham is our social media producer and Lydia Yosefova is our community and events coordinator. This episode was mixed and compiled by Nico Plaskas. Shiningberg composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Danny Stewart. Thanks for listening.